Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And as you turn there, just want to share uh, a thought with you. If you ever listen to people's testimonies of how they came to know Jesus, you'll often hear some of them say that something happened to make them realize they were a sinner before God in need of redemption. And many times that something that made them know that was some form of rebuke. Um, That was the equivalent of a mirror being held up to them and they finally saw the ugliness of their sin. Many times when people first hear that, they actually resent and are mad at the person that shares that with them. That's happened to me. It's happened maybe to some of you. Um, And these days we're reluctant to offend anybody, so we're reluctant to share something that might be perceived and received uh, in a hard way. Um, But uh, it's amazing how many testimonies you hear, it's included in that, that that got somebody thinking. You have all heard me now share my father-in-law's story of being on the work site and blaspheming the Lord or something like that, and a, a man rebuking him on the work site there and saying, Norman, there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And my father-in-law couldn't get those words out of his mind. He, he didn't appreciate the man saying at the time, but he not only stopped cursing that, uh, I mean, with that man right there on the site that day, but he went home and couldn't get that out of his mind. And that contributed to his coming to know the Lord. One of the first books written on preaching was a book called The Art of Prophesying by a man named William Perkins. And William Perkins lived in the 1500s. He lived from 1558 to 1602. And so he went on to be a preacher, but he wasn't always a preacher. Uh, And this man who wrote the first book on preaching, his awakening began when he overheard a woman threatening her son. Uh, So her son was giving Mama a hard time. and Mama said, you better hold your tongue or I will give you to drunken Perkins yonder. (laughs) I'm going to just put you right over there with that old drunk right there, drunken Perkins yonder. And when he heard that truth spoke about him, that in the eyes of his neighbors, he was nothing but a drunk, you know, uh, in the corner, it struck him like lightning in his heart. He said, I don't want to be the butt of the jokes and a drunk. And, you know, a woman uses an epitaph like that for a woman uh, trying to discipline her son. And so he turned to Jesus and was saved and went on to become the kind of preacher that would then write a book that other preachers would use. And it's really good. It's not very big. Uh, It's really good, though. He basically said, listen, here's what you do when you preach. Uh, You you read the text. uh, You arrange the message with suitable points related to the text. uh, And then, if able, go on a little while illustrating and applying. If not, just read the text and go on home, you know, <laughs> don't mess it up. But I thought that was great. So it was very simple. But uh, many times the truth hurts before it heals. And we do. We live in a day when people quickly frame themselves as victims, not sinners. And they refuse to listen when others rebuke them. Many times someone trying to help them is greeted with mind your own, you know, mind your own business. 
Uh, and most of us have seen examples of people being busybodies or rebuking someone else about stuff that just doesn't matter. We don't want to be like that, you know. We want to, you know, keep your powder dry, right? That's the old statement. We want to save our uh, words for people uh, for, for uh, you know, times when um, and, and apt, we can speak the word aptly rather than just be known as always, you know, criticizing and complaining and things like that. Uh, so we're, when we're in a situation where we should speak up, most of us don't want, uh, don't because we don't want to be perceived as unkind or unloving, intolerant, you know, etc. But there's two big problems with that. First, some of the people that we try to nice into heaven uh, you know, are on their way to hell and uh, they need us. They need the truth uh, however it comes. And we don't want them to go to hell because we didn't speak up. Second, others they influence might die in their sins and go to hell if we don't speak up. I have seen times where someone was blaspheming or running their mouth about something and I said something to them and they rejected me but it affected somebody else that was listening on. You know, and you will see that too. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote, let your graciousness be known to all, but he also wrote, speak the truth in love. And he did tell his protégés to encourage and rebuke and exhort with all authority as they spoke to people. I think I put Adrian Rogers' quote here for you. It's better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. None of us would appreciate a doctor uh, that came in and said, it'll, it'll probably be okay, you know. Um, when he's looking at an x-ray or something, a CAT scan or something that says we need chemotherapy, uh, we don't want him in kindness to say, I don't want to really put you through that. It'll hurt, you know, you'll, you'll experience pain as you go through that. No, we say, we'll take that pain. We'll take that pain because there's healing on the other side. And that's what the words of truth are like as we share them, as we share with a, a, a world. So. Obviously, something related to direct rebukes is going to be in the text for today, and so let's read it now. Acts 13, we read of the first real missionary journey. Uh, we read last time about the Holy Spirit separating Barnabas and Saul and sending them out from the beautiful church at Antioch. Verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, that's on the island of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, we could say John Mark, as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Uh, Bar is son, so son of Jesus. This guy was the son of Jesus, or called himself that, who was with the proconsul. Uh, a lot of people were named Jesus or Jesus in that day, so it's not necessarily a, a takeoff or anything, but this one was a particular false prophet. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Proconsul would be like a city manager. So we have a city manager in uh, Danville. This would be a, uh, an encounter with the city manager. And this man was trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? 
And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. The truth is marching on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Acts chapter 13 and this kind of next stage in the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 about the gospel getting to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the pivotal role the church in Antioch had in sending out Barnabas and Saul. And even though we know other apostles went other directions with the faith, we thank you for the inspiring example of Barnabas and Saul in being among the first to go beyond uh, not only Jerusalem, but beyond Judea and Samaria uh, to the uh, Gentile regions. And we thank you for the things that they model for us as they went, the reliance on prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit, the courage to speak, the strategy to go from familiar to less familiar audiences and use every thing, uh, resource and talent and connection that you'd given them to open doors. Uh, we thank you for how they model all those things, Lord God. And we thank you that uh, when they shared, uh, you worked and some people came to Christ, Lord. Sometimes multitudes of people came to Christ. But Lord, we know that uh, it's not necessary for us to view success as anything other than faithfulness, Lord God. We know our job is to take the courage to share when you give us opportunities. And we thank you that you... Uh, Lord, determine the scope of that fruitfulness. Lord, we thank you that the truth is marching on in our day as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, here we are in Acts chapter 13. It really gets fun at this point in the book of Acts. It's been fun because it's the record of what went on and we see so many things. But in today's text, we begin reading about many of the places that the Apostle Paul took the gospel to. And it's very exciting. Now, I want you just to imagine for a moment. Let's, let's imagine a little bit here. Imagine being on Paul's team uh, with him. And uh, can you imagine looking out the chariot window as it bumped along the 16 miles from Antioch down to Seleucia? Some of us would have need, needed to see our chiropractor after that, right? You're bouncing along on the chariot. And then you're on the boat and you're looking over the side of the boat as it pitched back and forth on the 90-mile trip to Salamis on the island of Cyprus. So hard, bouncy roads, you know, and then these ships going back and forth and sometimes there being storms at sea. Can you imagine uh, Saul and Barnabas doing what Gary does when he leads a trip, bringing the group together and saying, we're going to pray about the day's activity. going to share some truth with you and we're going to pray because we want to be united as a team about what we're going to do. Uh, can you hear them discussing their strategy? One of the great things about reading the book of Acts is it's clear they were not flying by the seat of their pants. Paul does some predictable things as he goes to each place and it teaches us that it's okay to think in terms of our plans to hold an event, to try to do an outreach, etc. Obviously, all of our plans need to be bathed in prayer and we need to be a part of that prayer is saying, Lord, we're listening if you uh, want us to divert our efforts from this neighborhood to that neighborhood. Uh, our water ministry is doing that right now. You know, we know we want to continue to outreach and run a bus, 
but is it this neighborhood or would we best be served with a less transient neighborhood over to this neighborhood? People are a little more settled. So things like that are being bathed in prayer now and thought about. And so you do those kind of things. There's so much to meditate on when you think about this, not only the travel aspects of it, but the, the, those things. So I want to approach this text from several different angles this morning, or this evening, sorry. Uh, and in verse 4, I want to highlight the readiness of the team to go. Verse 4 says, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, this does not mean, the fact that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit does not mean they were not well prepared. Uh, too many excuse lack of experience and training by saying they're relying on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works through times of preparation as well, right? And so, um, you know, a, uh, we, we trust that the pastor bringing a message on Sunday morning or the Sunday school bringing, teacher bringing a message uh, during Sunday school class or a small group leader sometime during the week has had the Holy Spirit uh, energizing their study all along the way as they're in the text and God is speaking to them through the text and those things. Um, so when I think about all the different ways God had prepared Paul, we've been reading about some of them in the book of Acts. We get other clues in books like Galatians and uh, the Timothys and the Titus. Paul gives little clues about his life and what happened before he wound up in Antioch and being part of this trip. We've read some about Barnabas that way too. It makes me think of a, a country song, don't judge me, um, a country song by a guy named Zane Williams. You might not have ever heard it. It's one of those Texarkana type of country songs. It's called Overnight Success. And I wanted to read the lyrics to you because sometimes we look and say, Ooh, look at all that God did through Paul. And we forget Paul, uh, this is not his first rodeo. He's about 15 years into ministering at this point when this assignment comes. Here's the lyrics. He says, first you buy an old second-hand amp with a knob that sticks. You plug a cheap fender in, then you crank it to 10 and you learn a few haggard licks. Then you play every day for, oh, about nine or 10 years, writing songs for your girl and blowing all your money on gear. You talk to a drummer who's a friend of a friend at church. He's got a buddy who's been learning the bass, so you get together after work. You play together six months till the band is tight. Book your first big gig on a Friday night. Step up to the mic and pray you remember the words. Then you sing about love or maybe love gone wrong. And when you're done, way to go. You finish step one. <laughs> and, <laughs> And then he says, next you borrow 10 grand from your uncle and you make a CD. Good luck paying him back because it's a modern day fact. Anybody can get it for free. You spend your time online making virtual fans, shopping for a band van while you work for the man. Till you book enough gigs, you can turn in your two weeks notice. Then you sing about love, or maybe love gone wrong. And when you're through, that's pretty good. But that's just step two. <laughs> Step three, you glue your hands to a steering wheel. Step four, you eat fast food every meal. Step five and six, you fire the original band and buy a new van. Step seven, you burn out and give it a gup. Step eight, you come back because it's what you love. Step nine, you finally get a shot at the big time. So you sing about love or maybe love gone wrong and you put your whole heart and soul into every song. You make Letterman laugh and Leno smile, stack your awards up in a pile and guess what's next? Everybody calls you an overnight success. <laughs> And there's a little bit more, but you get the point. I thought that's very clever because we hear, oh, that's a great new band we're hearing. That's a great new Christian group we're hearing, you know, or whatever. And sometimes they've been at it 10, 15, 20 years, you know. Now other kids are putting stuff up on YouTube and being famous right away. Uh, <laughs> that happens in secular and Christian stuff now. But 
I thought that was great because we often think about how successful Paul became as a church planner and apostle, and we forget that he and Barnabas had at least 10 years, probably more, of Christian experience and service in local churches before them at this point, behind them at this point. And God's way is through getting involved in a local church, right? You get saved, you start attending, you start growing. Uh, pastor takes you when he goes visiting and you learn about visiting shut-ins and you learn about uh, witnessing to people like this, you know, and like that. And uh, his way is, God's way is to have his future leaders grown and trained in ministry in churches just like the tabernacle before they're sent out to other works. And it's starting to get fun around here, you know. Um, at, um, at the previous church, uh, I can say in the 21 years there, we had about 25 or 30 people go out into some type of ministry, full-time ministry, as uh, pastors, youth pastors. You saw one of them this week, Shannon Kaiser, you know, who's a great youth pastor, um, and uh, missionaries and church planners and those that were participating in church plants that weren't full-time but went to another place to help plant a church, you know, and that sort of thing. My own nephew. Uh, not the one that went to Liberty. He's involved in missions too. Uh, but uh, the one that's going to get married in July, we're going to uh, Samuel's wedding. And Samuel and Emily, after they get married, are going to move to Utah and take up jobs and be part of a church plant. You know? Uh, J.D. Greer, that great pastor over in Durham, encourages all of his young people to do two years after college somewhere serving the Lord, either as part of a church plant or overseas. And no surprise, his church has the most missionaries working through the North American Mission Board now and the most missionaries that are working through the International Mission Board now because of that. And it's just caught on and people do it, you know. And um, that's pretty exciting. But, uh, you know, we're up to uh, four or five already, you know, just since I've been here that are already, you know, doing those kind of things. And it's exciting, getting even more exciting. Well, Seleucia uh, was the port for Antioch. So that's the connection there. It was 16 miles away. Cyprus was a two-day boat journey from Antioch with a large Jewish po uh, population. Uh, which one of these uh, guys that went on this team was from Cyprus? Do you remember? Barnabas, that's right. Back in Acts 4, it said that he was a Levite from Cyprus. So for Barnabas, this is going to his stomping grounds. Uh, so that's kind of neat. Um, that made it a great place to start the mission trip. He, it may very well be that, because uh, God does use the burdens we have, it may very well be that Barnabas is like, it's great what all's going on in Antioch, but I can think of a lot, lots of lost family members and friends back in uh, Cyprus, on Cyprus Island. And it sure would be great to take the gospel more there. We know the gospel had already gotten there because of Acts 11:19. Remember, it told us, uh, verse. Uh, let's look at it. Acts 11:19. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So there may have even been some Antioch-based believers that were originally from Cyprus, and they were super-duper excited about the gospel going back to their home of Cyprus, uh, and uh, some had already gotten there. Um, so the next thing we want to look at is there from verses 4 and then 5, the strategy of the team as they went. Being sent out by the Spirit, 
So they were relying on the Spirit. They went down to Seleucia. There they sailed to Cyprus. Look what verse 5 says. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, we see several things here that we'll see, going to see over and over again in Paul's ministry. The first one is, Paul went to key cities. So if you look at a map of Cyprus, you see two key cities, and Paul goes to both of them on this trip. He goes to the two that are there, uh, Salamis, uh, the chief port and commercial center for Cyprus. Ninety miles away on the other side of the island was Paphos. Paphos was the capital of Cyprus, the seat of the Roman government. It was the center of Aphrodite worship. Uh, Aphrodite is also Venus. And it was a hotbed for immorality, as you can imagine, since Venus, uh, Aphrodite, aphrodisiac kind of thing going on there. So he went to key cities. Then he would first go to a synagogue. Uh, being from a Jewish background, if the city had a synagogue, that was the first place he was going to go. He was going to be there on the Sabbath. Um, later, we're going to read about him going to a place of prayer in Philippi uh, and there was a threshold to have a synagogue in a city around the Roman Empire. How many Jewish male heads of households did you have to have to have a synagogue in a city? Ten. Well, good, very good. Um, so we know in Philippi they didn't have that number because they were having a place of prayer hoping to have a synagogue there one day. And we'll get to that when we get to it. But if the city had a synagogue, Paul was going to go there and tell the folks there, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, the Messiah that you've been uh, talking about here in the synagogue, the conquering king, but don't forget the suffering servant passages. That's Jesus. That's who I'm going to preach to you. This was in part of his love for his countrymen, but it was also smart because of their knowledge of a promised Messiah. Practically speaking, no Jew would listen to him if he went to the Gentiles first. So you think about that. Jews very proud in that day and today. Um, and if he had come into town talking about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the Gentiles first, and then he tried to go to the synagogue, and went, no, 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 no. So it had to be first. That's smart, too. Um, but then he would make the most of opportunities with Gentiles. That was the next part of his strategy. Later, we're going to read about him doing this as a tent maker in the marketplace, funding his own travels. But being bivocational, that's what we call somebody who pays their way through what they do, also put him in the marketplace where many Gentiles were, and it had him interacting with a lot of different people. Later, he's going to meet some people. It never says that he led them to Christ. I think they were already believers, but he meets this wonderful couple, and we find out that they were also tent makers, and they became key partners, Paul and this couple, in church planting. We read of two or three places along their travels that they had a church in their home, or a small group in their home. And do you remember their names? Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, sometimes her name comes first. Uh, uh, she probably was um, a little bit more boisterous than her husband and stuff. They were a power couple for the Lord, and I love it when uh, that happens. Uh, he would also use bridge-building connections. God uh, had given Paul various life experiences, and none of them would come to waste in his ministry. And the same thing is true for us. Uh, I've seen it in my life with soccer. Man, I've been able to play soccer with kids and adults around the world and then stop and share the gospel with them. It's been a bridge builder for me. 
Um, even tonight, there's a newer fellow visiting. Last night, the newer fellow is visiting the church. He happens to be from uh, El Salvador. Um, and the United States was playing El Salvador. And, um, you know, I uh, texted him and said, Hey, do you know U.S. is playing El Salvador? And so we texted during the whole game as we talked about it. His son was excited. You know, maybe he'll play for the U.S. one day. Who knows? Or El Salvador, either one. You can play for either one in his situation. But uh, so Paul would use his Roman citizenship. He would use his Roman name Paul uh, when that made more sense than the Jewish name Saul. Uh, and uh, we see that indicated here in verse 9. Then Saul, who is also called Paul. Well, why? He's talking to uh, people that... Uh, would uh, more readily recognize that Roman name. He said, oh, I'm also Paul, you know. So it's not that Saul spiritually became Paul, you know, it's that both were names he had in his background and Paul, the uh, more Roman Empire name took over. Another strategy that he had was he always ministered as part of a team. He was developing future leaders as he led. Paul wasn't just thinking of addition of the people that he witnessed to. He was thinking in terms of multiplication. And uh, I'll tell you, sometimes this gets really exciting when you think about how we each have our part in, uh, you know, doing things together, the older and the younger in a church and between churches and things like that. And you never know how God's going to use uh, different things. It gives me personally great delight to see many of the people that, uh, or to hear, John says in 3 John, I have no greater joy than knowing my children are walking in truth. And it gives me great joy to know how many of the people that I ministered to and discipled back up at Wayne Hills are helping the pastor there and, and great things are happening. It also gives me great joy to think of five other church plants in the uh, area up there that we've had some role in there and here also ministering in that area, you know. So it's neat how that happens as it goes along. And uh, so... It uh, gives me joy here, even though we'd like to have so many more people here at the Tabernacle. You know, it gives me joy to think about all the churches in our area that are uh, either preached to or led in music by people that uh, cut their teeth in ministry right here, um, including those working in youth and children's ministries at places. And, uh, you know, so that uh, some, of, some of those churches really wouldn't have much going on with children and youth if it wasn't for tabernacle graduates, so to speak, doing those things. That's exciting. They had John as their assistant, and they were looking to develop him, and that is John Mark. We'll talk more about him in a little bit. Well, in verses 6 through 12, we read of the opposition that the team overcame. So here's another of our observations from the text. And... Um, in these verses, we read that in Paphos, they met a proconsul and a false prophet. And as I said, the proconsul was a Roman official who served as the provincial governor. Um, and this magician uh, could also be translated sorcerer, sorcerer, magician. Um, Elymas is actually Greek for ma magician. So when we see his name, Elymas, it's basically calling him a sorcerer. And... Um, Sorcery and magic was banned in Judaism, but its practice continued. So Paul had double reason to not like this guy. He wasn't even a faithful Jew, and he was distracting the proconsul from hearing the gospel. He was keeping Sergius Paulus from hearing Saul Paulus speak about Jesus. So Paul rebuked him and blinds him for a time. And here's where we say there is a time for direct rebuke as Jesus and the apostles uh, modeled for us. 
Uh, it's not inconsistent with speaking the truth in love or letting your graciousness be evident to all or be angry, but sin not. Now, here's what's great. Sometimes I've rebuked somebody and they have not received it well, but the Holy Spirit kept working and they come back later and say, thank you for telling me the truth and everybody else was feeding me lies, you know. And uh, even those who still don't like me, at least have some respect, you know, for me doing that. Got a note from a friend one time. He said, you know, you called me out on something when everybody else was blowing smoke in my face. And I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate when people have done that with me, too. Um, doesn't mean my initial reaction is going to be a good one. It hurts to be rebuked, you know. But many times you keep thinking about it, go, oh, yeah, Gary's right about that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Glad he said something. But again, we should not just go around rebuking people over stuff that doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just a fact of today. Um, uh, let me give the 30-second um, version of this. Um, but there, in the baby boomer generation, there are 77 million people. That's how many there were born. And because of immigration, it's still 77 million. So a lot of people around. My generation is the one below that. Only 47 million were born. So that's minus 30 million right there. And then the generation after me has 77 or 8 million. And the one after that has 77 or 78 million. So as you're looking at generations of things, the oldest generation, there's 30 million less. So a lot of times as churches are making transitions and governments or governmental organizations are making transitions and other things are happening, businesses, et cetera, there's that many less people in the next generation down. And so granddad has to look at grandson to come lead the thing. Or a church has to look for a younger pastor than they necessarily be comfortable with. And my thesis to you guys is many of the things going on right now aren't theological about it. Even as I look at the Southern Baptist Convention, they're generational differences being illustrated as this generation just thinks a little bit differently about this thing, but uh, is not necessarily being biblically unfaithful. Um, and one of those areas is every generation needs to learn for itself about stuff. And I know uh, in my talking to young people, um, we as we're older, just are so frustrated with the mess of things that so many of our politicians have made. I have found the younger people that I influence very open to having conversations based on biblical truth about morality. But when you start, when they come to church and in the bathroom hear specific names being thrown around, uh, it really uh, disgusts them. You know, they, they want to hear biblical truth, they want to hear it said well but they uh, oftentimes hear us criticizing particular Democratic politicians or whatever, uh, and um, it, it is, uh, it's pushing many people away, and they wind up in younger gener generation churches where they all think that way rather than learning the wisdom of the older and us feeding on their excitement. So anyway, uh, you know, um, one of my favorite stories about a good rebuke is um, I was on a prison ministry, Bill Glass prison ministry, and uh, one of the guys there um, was a g gifted musician. He actually was the guy. Did y'all ever see the movie The Sting? It was about the, yeah, the sting with the cards, right? He was the guy. He was the guy, uh, the, the, the sting guy. 
And in fact, Paul Newman doesn't do the card scene in the movie. He did, <laughs> you know, because it was his card trick and stuff. Um, but uh, he would be witnessing to somebody, and sometimes he'd be witnessing to an inmate, and some other inmates would be snickering because this guy's hearing the gospel, and they'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, laughing and stuff like that. So here's how he would deal with that. He'd say, hey, buddy, any of those guys over there going to do any of your time in here for you? No, man, i got to do my own time. He said, well, they're not going to do any of your eternity for you either. And he would say it loud enough so they'd hear it too. And he said, so you better listen because, you know, there's a lot more at stake here than whether your, your goofy friends there think you anything of. So oftentimes that would make them listen too, and they would all hear the gospel, which was pretty cool. Jesus and Paul's sternest words were for those who claim to know God, but whose words or actions gave people the wrong idea about God. And they also, the sternest words, for anyone whose words or actions obscured others' access to the gospel. And so here, uh, Paul realizes this sorcerer not only is a false prophet, a, you know, a, claims to be a Jew but really doesn't know anything, um, but he's also distracting the proconsul from hearing the gospel, and he's having none of it. Uh, so look at this verse 8 again. Um, Elemas the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And don't you wish you could do this? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. <laughs> so Paul's kind of come full circle, isn't he? He was the blasphemer that one time was going to hurt Christians, and God made him blind for a time. And now uh, he's able to do that uh, to this guy, and that would be great. That would really reinforce a lot of good preaching right there. Uh, but I, I would not handle that power well, Vicky. so probably good I can't do that. <laughs> um, so in Galatians, uh, but, but, you know, uh, this is also true, uh, you know, as far as rebuke goes, um, you know, sometimes of, you know, our fellow believers. Uh, and I framed it to you that way. You remember Jesus rebuked Peter when Peter would have kept him from suffering for sinners. And so Jesus said, okay, guys, now that you've identified that I'm the, the Messiah, here's, here, okay, we're, we're turning a page now. It happens in Matthew's gospel. It happens in Mark's gospel. It happens in Luke's gospel. We're turning a page now. We're going to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be betrayed, arrested. I'm going to be killed, suffer and killed. And the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And in Matthew 16, Peter pulls him aside and said, I'll never let that happen to you. You know, you're not going to suffer. And it's like, well, I have to suffer. Suffering servant passages. Uh, so Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You've got your mind on human interests rather than God's interests. And I wonder how many times um, from heaven one of the angels looked at another and said, man, Danny could use Jesus' words to Simon Peter right now, you know, because he's trying to think of something through a human way rather than God's way. So pretty cool there. In Galatians we read about a time Paul confronted Peter. Poor old Peter, always on the south end of these things. We read about a time Paul confronted Peter and Barnabas because they had been eating with Gentile converts in Antioch, but they pulled away from them a little when their legalistic Jewish believer friends came to visit. So here's the Jews and here's the Gentiles. Uh, 
There were Gentiles, so many of them there. Peter comes to inspect things. He's having a good time. He's meeting people he ordinarily wouldn't interact with. Remember, he's the guy that had the vision with Cornelius and stuff. So we wonder about the timing of this, right? But, uh, you know, uh, then uh, Peter's Jewish friends come from Jerusalem. They're sitting on the other side of the cafeteria, so to speak. And Peter, next time he's got his tray, goes... I mean, all the Gentile guys are waving, saying, hey, Peter, come on, let's continue that conversation we were having before those guys got it. And he's like, looking the other way and going and sitting down with them. And Paul came into the room and he said, come on, man, Peter, who, who do you care most about offending? Um, later, Paul writes about being very conscientious about not hurting the faith of the weaker brother. In Corinthians, he does that. I believe that's the most overlooked principle in the New Testament, the weaker brother principle. I've seen so many of my fellow pastors so concerned about not offending people that by this time should be fishing for souls along with the pastor uh, that they inevitably offend weaker brothers or non-Christians that they're trying to reach out to. And we just completely flipped that thing from what Paul did. Paul's concern was that mature believers would always say, oh, look, here's somebody that doesn't understand our lingo. Here's somebody that doesn't understand the reason we've got these convictions. We need to rewind since they're here and just go all the way back to the basics and try to uh, let them know we love them, Christ loves them, here's the truth of the Bible, and we will win them to this new worldview that they'll have and will help develop once they embrace our faith. But many times we never get that far because we've already done that. So Paul had some of his strongest rebukes for those kind of situations uh, that were going on. So here he rebukes a hell-bound sinner who's not letting another hell-bound sinner hear the life-giving gospel that the man uh, actually wanted to hear. Um, now, interestingly, we don't read of uh, Elymas being saved, uh, but we do read that the proconsul was. So it works, right? So he was, hallelujah. But we don't read of others being saved there. So the final, uh, where the verse 13 point that I have for you is the limited results this first time out. Now, Luke in the book of Acts does a pretty good job telling us when there's been great response to the gospel, doesn't he? Do you remember he lets us know it had been passed down to him how many were saved and baptized at the day of Pentecost? How many were there? 3,000. He might have, you know, it could have been rounded, but 3,000. A couple chapters later, he tells us 2,000 more, right? And, you know, many times he says a great multitude and stuff like that. We don't read about that here. Um, he told us that large numbers had believed in Antioch. So we ask the question, how many people do we know believed after this trip to Cyprus? Only the one man that we know of for sure, but he was an important man. He was a governor, the proconsul, so that's a great place to start. We don't read of anybody in Salamis, and one did in Paphos. Well, that's a lot of work for men used to preaching to hundreds, if not thousands, right? I mean, they'd already seen some big stuff happen in Jerusalem and other places too. Um, so I'm so thankful for this passage because in our success-driven culture, we're often drawn toward the success stories in the book of Acts and forget the places where there were none or just one converted. Um, and uh, so it's neat to read about that here. 
And it makes us reflect back on the parable of the sower, doesn't it? Matthew 13. And that's given in part to encourage us that our job is to sow the seed of the gospel um, and there will be different responses to it. Very often taking the gospel to places where Satan has reigned through false religion means year of plowing and planting before the harvest comes. Uh, it is neat when you go on a mission trip to a very hostile place and see somebody saved. We were delighted when we were in uh, that island, Jimin Island in China or Taiwan. And, uh, you know, uh, that uh, less about 1% of the people on the island are Christians, one of the lowest uh, percentages of Christians even in Asia, which has got low percentages, you know. But when four got saved, that was wonderful. Praise the Lord, you know. And you guys helped make it happen through prayer and through financing the trip. We think about Adoram Judson, the, his hard work in Burma. You know, it was seven years of hard work in Burma before Adoram Judson saw the first convert. Uh, and so it may take years before your loved one is saved. And there are highs and lows in the life of a church, a denomination, classes and homes and lives as we serve God. Don't lose heart. Just keep on going. Uh, be courageous like Paul was. And uh, mature servants get that. Immature servants often don't. They often give up when things get hard. And we see that here in verse 13, don't we? It says here, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. They're going further up and further in after limited results in Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. Must have been breaking Barnabas' heart. That means there weren't a lot of converts among Barnabas' family and friends, you know. But they went on up to, uh, you know, southern Europe. It's Turkey now, right? And, um, and it says, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And, of course, Luke puts that in here because it's going to be a major theme as they start their second missionary trip. Barnabas is going to want to take his cousin, uh, John Mark, along. And Paul's like, no way. He left us. Uh, man, when it got hot, he got out of there and he'll, he'll desert us again. And that'll make, our, that'll make our team look bad, you know, and those things. Um, it says John went back to Jerusalem, and that's where he was from. We know that from the rest of the book of Acts. He had seen big numbers in Jerusalem and in Antioch. His mom had hosted prayer meetings. He was close with Peter, who had been harassed and arrested. Perhaps he had also known the martyr Stephen and James. He thought he was ready for this trip, but after the 200-mile boat trip to Perga and Pamphylia, a much longer boat trip, he bought a ticket and sailed home. And uh, later it's made clear, as I said, that he deserted them. He just said, forget this. I, I can't take it. You know, I don't know if he had some kind of breakdown or not. But he had been in over his head and he went home. Fortunately, we're going to see later that God wasn't done with him yet. And of course, he went on to write the second gospel and go back to Cyprus with Barnabas. Uh, later, Paul recognized how valuable a minister he was. But for our purposes, I share that so we will pray for those who minister within the tabernacle and those we send out from the tabernacle. There are a lot of pressures on those who serve God. Think about our friends that are in uh, Southeast Asia. I won't give the country here because we're putting this online. Um, but, uh, you know, people do get killed where they serve. Christians do get killed. Um, they have to be very careful as they do their work, um, the opportunities they take to share. Um, and uh, that's a lot of pressure. But it's a lot of pressure for us now, too, just running a bakery in America or something like that. You know, you're concerned about this group coming after you or that group coming after you. Religious liberty, even in Virginia, the home.
home of some of the great religious liberty documents in American's history. You know, have uh, religious liberties suffered in our workplaces, in our uh, country, our, our state and country as well. So many pressures for those that serve the Lord. And so when a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a foreign missionary comes to mind, pray for them. Uh, pray for them, pray for them, you know, uh, to be faithful with uh, the uh, sphere of influence the Lord's given them. One more thought here as we close. So we ask about the home church. Antioch had sent two of its best men out, and they never come back and pastor there. Paul and Barnabas are never on staff back at Antioch again, uh, like they had been, the staff, right? That's, speaking of it that way. Uh, how did they fare after losing their two key pastors, uh, staff members? After the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Antioch became the world center of Christianity. One of them, anyway. Uh, it was Alexandria, became a key place in Egypt. Antioch was a huge one also, uh, and uh, Rome just after that. But the Antioch church really became the center of things. And by A.D. 400, 100,000 Christians lived in that city. Um, and so obviously the church at Antioch kept doing the work themselves. And when you're doing the work here and you're sending out teams that are doing the work there and there and there, then you get that multiplication thing that really has the gospel spread like wildfire. And it's, uh, may, may it be true in America again that it spreads like that. In some ways it is. Uh, there's many positive areas where God's at work and uh, we want to pray for those works even as we pray for uh, you know, revival and awakening among uh, those that uh, we'd like to see that happen in America. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.